0: Hello and welcome to The New Statesman Deep Dive, the podcast that explores the ideas behind the news.
1: People are racing against the machine, and many of them are losing that
0: race. The impact of technology on employment is one of those subterranean issues that has the potential to completely shake up our politics, like we need any more shaking up. We're going to see more and more things that look like science fiction and fewer and fewer things that look like jobs. Jobs, who does them, how many there are to go round, how we feel about doing them, are absolutely fundamental to society. And digital technology may change the job market more radically than at any point since the Industrial Revolution. They work for one of the UK's fastest
1: growing tech companies, but are in protest over
0: pay. We're here working seven days a week for Deliveroo. We're out here all day, all night, working, 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 working. Robots of some kind or another are already doing a lot of jobs, once done by human beings, like shop assistants, accountants and the Prime Minister. But we're really only at the beginning. Here's a quote from the leader of a big UK employer at a recent summit organised by the Times. We're not actually in the business of employing people, we're in the business of doing business. And the likelihood is that the demand for employment will go down. So that's Charlie Mayfield, who's the chairman of John Lewis. Um, and, you know, he's talking not just about John Lewis, but the, about the whole economy. The, the demand for employment will go down. So on this week's Deep Dive, we'll be talking about what it means for politics when the demand for employment goes down. And I'm delighted to say that we'll be doing so with the help of a special guest, Sarah O'Connor of the Financial Times. And... Um, Before we turn to Sarah, I want to say hello to my co-host, Stuart Wood. Hello, Ian, again. Um, I guess the sort of job of uh, a peer is not going to be... You can't be replaced by a robot, can you? I mean, surely (laughs) your work is just to... Uh, it's too valuable. It's too valuable. Exactly. Uh, no, nobody else can you know, sit on a bench and fall asleep. You, know, you, can't, you can't program an algorithm to do that. You need a human No, I being. agree. You need, you need a, a huge amount of wisdom, talent, and patronage to be able to do what <laughs> yeah. I do. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. Um, what, what are your uh, observations about what's going on with our uh, Just About Managing Prime Minister at the moment? Well, I think
1: the fascinating development is this pact with the D E P, which you might think is constitutionally essential because without it you don't get a majority and therefore you won't be able to govern. But it's, I think it's going to be such a poison chalice for the Conservative Party for, for, for two reasons. One is I think, I, I do think, and I, you know, I declare my interest, I used to be Northern Ireland advisor to Gordon Brown, but I do think that whatever the intentions, whatever, the, whatever they profess, it will have a pretty destructive impact on the perception of the government's ability to be an honest broker in Northern Ireland. And it's not as though Northern Ireland is not in crisis. It's actually multiple crises at the moment. And crises are going to get worse with Brexit, because as we all know, Northern Ireland is one of the Achilles heels of the Brexit project. Um, So there's that problem. But there's also a party political problem for them, which is the DUP. I know some of these people very well. They're very honourable people. They're very principled, incredibly canny negotiators. um, And their politics has been... Yeah, it's at least
0: good practice for Brexit to to negotiate with the DUP, because they are... That's true. It's like a training exercise. That's true.
1: Um, That's definitely right. But they are very, very socially conservative and a pact with the D.P. coming in the wake of a, an election that has revealed a potentially catastrophic problem the Tories have with under 40s, with millennials and not even millennials. I think the, the, the jarring between those two things, allying yourself to a very socially conservative party at a time when you've got to reach out to people who are not looking at retirement down the line very soon that's a real political problem for the Conservative Party, and they are now joined at the hip. Every
0: day this this government survives, and that is a real problem for them. So many problems. We've gone from sort of uh, the Labour Party is in terminal de- de- decline to the Tories are in terminal decline in, it, <laughs> in the space of weeks. Um, but here at the Deep Dive, we like to look at the uh, the underlying issue, the deeper issues, if you like, that are that are governing our, our political debate. So so let's um, turn to this this question of uh, technology and employment. So do you, do you think this is a, a an issue for, for the left? or who, who do you think it hurts more or, or which do you think has the greater opportunity, the left or the right, when it comes to dealing with this? Um, well, I think the, one of the ironies is that the, the
1: left, I mean, the last 200 years of, of leftiness in Europe has largely revolved around work and releasing people from the oppressiveness of work. Um, if you look at Marx, looking at Marx this morning, as I do, obviously, every morning I you know, read a bit of Karl Marx... And you know, famously, there's only, there's only two pages in Marx's entire canon of work, which actually describes what communist society looks like.
0: Oh, yeah, no, so uh, uh, at which point he sort of coughs and moves on. Exactly. Into, you
1: know, and when he was forced not to cough, and he, I've got it here, he says, in communist society, where no one has an exclusive sphere of activity, anyone each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, um, I will be able to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticise after dinner. Uh, and that's often sort of parodied, that, that, that passage, it does sound like a description
0: of the metropolitan elite. It does, apart from uh, the cattle bit. You know.
1: But actually, the idea, there is a potential, this agenda of automation and robots and releasing people to have full, full and fulfilling lives. Um, yeah. And the left, I think, should be embracing that. But... We've come, the left has also come to define a job as the mark of human decency, not just the left, but more generally. Yeah. And I, the, the really interesting reaction is the left at the moment is, I think, quite scared of robots automation and the effect it's going to have. And I personally think slightly overacting, but we'll discuss that with our expert in
0: a minute, Sarah. Well, indeed, we should t- turn to uh, our special guest with no further ado. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Um Sarah O'Connor is a economist and reporter for the FT who has established... A reputation for some of the best reporting and most incisive thinking in this area. So we're very glad to have her here. Um, Stuart, do you want to? Yeah, so I just wanted to kick off by asking you about how different this particular
1: revolution is to all the other revolutions that have happened in every decade for the last 150 years. I mean, economists, every generation, there's a branch of commentary that says, oh, this technology is going to change everything, it's going to displace human activity and human employment. And then it doesn't. Well, maybe it does and we just adapt. I mean, is this is there something different about the current obsession with automation and robots changing the nature of work that's different to those previous Is it different words? to Luddites,
0: yeah.
2: So I do think it is fundamentally different. I mean, if you go back through time and look at, you know, headlines from the New York Times in the 1920s, loads of the headlines had things like the march of the machines, robots to destroy work. You know, these things are things that we've worried about intensely for ages and with good reason. I mean, it's not... It's not that we should be relaxed about it. I think AI and robotics will be transformative. But the light bulb was transformative. The steam engine was transformative. Trains were transformative. Um, And none of them lead ultimately to mass unemployment. Um, And I don't think there's any reason to think that this time would lead to mass unemployment. I mean, if you want the kind of case that people make for why it would, if you read people like Martin Ford, who wrote this very kind of apocalyptic book about robots he basically says that ai will be so good that it will just be able to do everything like literally everything a human could do a robot will learn how to do better but actually when you talk to the people who are doing ai and doing robotics they just say that the notion that that could happen is like a million miles away from where we are now Mm. i mean last night i went and met an incredibly human-like robot called sophia I mean, she was. I'll show you a video later. She was kind of creepily human, but when you try and talk to her, you know, it's like talking to someone with brain damage. You know, she's all <laughs> over the place, and we're just we're nowhere near there yet. I mean, if the code, kind of the so-called singularity, where you create a robot that has sort of general human intelligence, I think at that point all bets are off. But even the people at Google DeepMind will tell you that we're just we're nowhere near there.
0: Okay, so so maybe. A different way of looking at it is, and I know you do look at this in in your work quite a lot, is the effect that technology is having on humans uh, and the way they do their jobs and the way they have to do their jobs. And in a way, the problem is, uh, not necessarily humans being replaced by by robots, but but the workplace being organised around technology in a way that makes turns human beings into <laughs> into robots, makes them kind of do things by you know enforces routine and method in a way that takes away kind of human initiative and, and creativity. Another Karl right. Marx favourite topic, by the way. Oh yeah. uh, right, of course.
2: So I mean that that kind of trend started with this thing called scientific management mm. around the turn of the you know the dawn of real big factories where this guy Taylor got a stopwatch and realized that he could measure kind of every action of every man in a factory and figure out the most efficient way that it should be done. And then basically break all work down into these little tasks and tell people how to do them and basically turn men into machines. Um, And I guess one of the threats that I see with the kind of blossoming of some of this new technology is that you can basically do Taylorism on steroids. You know, you mm. can really, you can do it to an extent that was never possible before. You can, you can manage people and really control what they're doing, even if they're not in a factory, even if they're an Uber driver or a Deliveroo courier. You can still kind of watch everything they're doing and making sure that they're doing it to your precise kind of specifications. And that just has implications for, do we enjoy work? Does it mean anything to yeah. us? And those, I think, are the the most important questions
1: to ask. Which which sectors are being transformed or have been most transformed by the the AI revolution so far? I mean, mean, we've got used over the last 50 years to robots replacing humans in manufacturing of cars and things like that, so that's not particularly new. Are there particular sectors, like maybe service sectors, or what are the areas where AI is really changing dramatically the character and the balance of, of work?
2: So the areas where you're starting to see it creep in are things like law. So there are now quite a few of the big fancy law firms are investing in their own AI to do the kinds of things that junior lawyers used to do, staying up all night, reading through like reams of documents, looking for dodgy clauses when there's a big MA transaction looming. They're now developing AI that can read through all that stuff very quickly and pick out, it can understand natural language and sometimes multiple languages, and then flag up to the more senior lawyers, these are the bits you need to look at. So there's stuff in kind of law and accountancy and that sort of thing. And then the other sort of really big one is what's going to happen to driving trucking yeah. you know if all of that becomes autonomous and that's obviously a huge disruption
1: But it's interesting that, that, from those examples it's not just the less skilled that are, that are having replacement effects actually it could go all the way up into well-paid professions and- absolutely
2: and you know i think one of the kind of interesting challenges of all this is do we need to kind of reappraise what we mean by skill mm-hmm. you know i met an accountant recently who said hang on i'm more replaceable than someone who works in a nursing home does that am i am i still more skilled than her if what I can be can do is done by a robot and what she can do can't.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so yeah, I think it definitely would have a sort of dif- different distributional effect.
0: That's very really interesting. The, the, and the, especially the comparison with nursing homes and, and social care, because that's an area where it's, it's very difficult to replace, you know, perhaps impossible to replace human beings. And so the productivity gains that you get from automation are concentrated in certain areas of the private sector. But they're not really going to help with with the public sector, as far as I can see, because you can't really...
2: So Japan is trying really hard to ah, introduce robots into things like elderly care, because Japan has this perfect storm of a really, really old and ageing population, a shrinking population, zero immigration, because Japan just doesn't tolerate large amounts of immigration. And so they really need to know how on earth are we going to look after these old people? So they are building little robots that will keep old people company. But I went to Japan recently (laughs) and met one and it was the most irritating thing. Oh, why?
0: What was it
1: like? It was like
2: this little tabletop robot that was meant to be very cute. Had very big eyes, and but its job is to remind you to take your pills at certain points. <laughs> and I just thought, actually, if you left me alone with this all day, I would like throw it on the floor, <laughs> take the batteries out, or something. So
1: Sophia yesterday beat the Japanese robot. You think in terms of personability and
2: no, she creeped me out as well. Actually, maybe <laughs> I just don't like robots.
1: Isn't <laughs> won't won't AI like other technological innovations create a new cadre of jobs like to service the machines? And I mean. Are we are we seeing job creation in these ancillary services in just, you know, greasing the wheels and doing all the things to keep the machines and the AI up to speed?
2: Yeah, definitely. And that's something I've been meaning to write more about, actually. So with AI, the kind of crucial thing that makes AI good or bad is how much data can you get to train it on? And who do you get to train it? Who do You, you need to kind of train these algorithms to, like, learn from their mistakes and to learn from a human who kind of plugs in a bit of input so there are yeah there are jobs being created in AI training and they're not even necessarily high skilled jobs some of them are just people like stay-at-home mums who log onto an app and do a bit of AI training for a few hours in the afternoon Mm -hmm. Um, there's also just like more basic things so there are delivery companies like Hermes that are developing little robot deliverers and at the minute every robot has its own robot walker which is just a man who walks behind the robot and makes sure it doesn't, like, fall off the curb.
1: That's my next <laughs> but job. frankly, okay. those jobs are yeah. not going to
2: last that long, only until the Stabilize technology gets on, a bit better. I yeah. mean,
0: presumably a robot to walk the robot at some point <laughs> as well. <so>. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> um, okay. When, you, when you're talking to, I mean, you've done some great reporting on, on companies like Uber and Deliveroo, um, where you, you talk to the people who are employed, well, I don't know if I can use that term, but, you know, who, who Uber drivers, Deliveroo drivers, um, did you how did you find that they were experiencing the uh, you know being sort of organized their, their work schedule being organized by by algorithm what was your kind of overall impression of the way they felt about that the way they experienced it so there was
2: a mixture i would say like i think people who kind of blanket criticize the gig economy are probably making a mistake because there's a reason that people are doing this and actually a lot of the people who I talk to who are working as Uber drivers or whatever it might be, they used to have traditional jobs and they hated them. And Mm. one of the things they hated was the kind of capriciousness of their human boss who would look over their shoulder, give them shifts or not give them shifts, depending on whether they liked their face or not. And actually they preferred, they accepted that actually they were still under a lot of control, but they preferred the facelessness of the algorithm to the, the kind of reality of a human breathing down their necks. Um, so in some ways, I think they genuinely feel like it is a bit of a release. But that said, there's still massive frustrations with the algorithms, and particularly the fact that they're not they're not very flexible. So someone might have a bad experience in your Uber car that's actually not your fault at all. Maybe there was just awful traffic, but they're cross when they get out, so they give you a one star rating. But Uber doesn't know why you got a one star rating, and once your ratings drop below, you know, three. And they just, I mean, they can't sack you because you're not an employee, but they deactivate you. This is like the new... Deactivate. Vo- the wow. new vocabulary. They chest to... up and
1: un- undo the wires. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, things like that, I think people do find troubling. And those are the sorts of areas that we're going to have to think mm. about a lot more.
1: Are there, are there wider ethical issues, which as a society we haven't even started to think about here, about particularly with robots that learn and then innovate and make judgments i mean we haven't even begun have we to think about the regulatory problems that poses or the ethical dilemmas it poses and who who the responsible bodies are going to be to start addressing these things
2: yeah abs- i mean these are the sorts of things i think we need to worry about before we worry about whether all the jobs are going to disappear is these questions of responsibility and that sort of thing if you think about a robo lawyer who makes a mistake yeah who do you sue do you sue the law firm that was using it do you sue the creator of the AI similarly with you know lots of journalism now is being done by pretty basic kind of AI that will do simple reports what if they get something wrong that then means that someone trades on it and makes a loss who who do you sue so I think there are big problems around that and then with autonomous cars the big question people are now talking about is if your autonomous car is presented with a situation where it either swerves and kills the passengers or it keeps going and kills the people in front of it which does it choose? You know, these are like moral judgments about life and death, but we're going to have to hand them over to a AI.
1: Will you be able to choose
0: which kind of car you go into based on that choice? <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean although when we compare it to to drive we often forget that how bad human beings are at driving or or doing these tasks right so human beings make different kinds of mistakes but they make mistakes too so you're you're basically comparing you know which kind of set of mistakes do you do you prefer in which context
2: yeah and it might be um, humans almost certainly will make more mistakes than machines but is there a qualitative difference like do do we feel happier about a human mistake than a Mm. automated one
0: and, and just getting, you know, to, to the, the political question and the policy question, what are the, the just in, in broad terms, what are the, the, the possible responses that we can make to, to what's going on? I'm, you know, or at least what are the ones that you've seen that you go, well, okay, that, that sounds like it's it has potential to address some of these issues.
2: So one of the things that lots of people say, which must surely be true, but hasn't worked brilliantly in the last. 20, 30 years, is we need to think more carefully about education. So if robots and AI will be able to do more things, we need to think, how do we educate people so that they are better at doing the things that the robots won't be able to do? Or how do we make them more resilient or more creative or more adaptable? Um, And those are obviously good questions to ask. But I think, you know, we've been hoping that education is the answer to all of the economy's problems for a long time. And we haven't really got it right so far. I mean, that's also the response that we make when... You know, there's sort of rust belts appear. We mm. say, okay, we need to reskill and retrain these people. It's and all these true, yeah. coal miners can be coders and it'll all be fine. And it hasn't worked so far. So that's that has to be part of the solution. I don't know if it can really do everything. Not least because we don't know what the skills of the future are going to mm. be. So yeah. how can we predict and tell a five-year-old something that they're going to need in 20 years? Mm. Um, and then obviously, if you want to kind of take the extreme... and this this actually appeals to people on the extreme of the right and the left, you get into the conversation about a universal basic income, and do you actually accept that a lot of people won't be able to have jobs in this new economy, and therefore we need to think radically about how do we make sure that everyone still has a decent standard of living, and kind of separate the link between having a job and having decent living standards?
1: So I'm a a bit of a sceptic on basic income, I guess for two reasons. One is politically breaking the link between effort and reward, I think, is politically gonna make it very, very vulnerable to attack when things are. I can't go imagine wrong. the Daily
2: Mail readers. Yeah, it.
1: Exactly.
0: Um oh, what's, your, what's but, but, but isn't isn't but that that's a reason
2: not to do it. No, but, no, but isn't is,
0: isn't one of the arguments for it that that everyone gets it therefore, for you know, you're you're not sort of demonising one group of people who can't get a job and yeah. you know wrong, but you, you kind of remove that you dynamic. You remove the stigma you, you that's, that's the stigma, one exactly. of the
2: arguments for it, yeah. But I guess the, there's a practical problem with it, which is that unless you want to tax people a hell of a lot more, which some people will go along with, but a lot of people won't, you're fundamentally going to have to redistribute what benefits are already going out to people. And that means taking some benefits away from people that are getting lots, i.e. people who are heavily disabled, Mm. and giving them to people like me and you who Mm. have jobs and don't need it. Mm. And that is that just on a practical level that's very difficult.
1: But there are some experiments now around the world, right, in basic income. I think the yeah. Finns are doing something on it. Aren't the
2: Finns are doing something. So I think it's been kind of mislabeled. They're calling it a basic income oh, trial, see. but it's not really a purist one. So what they're doing is they're giving money to unemployed people without any conditions. So they don't have to prove that they're looking for a job, for example. Right. Um so I mean that is an interesting experiment, but it's not they're not giving money to everyone whether they've got a job or not. Um speaking you you were talking about the left and how it feels about some of this stuff. I was at a kind of trade union conference a few months ago of trade unions around Europe, um, and they were feeling deeply sceptical about universal basic income, I, th- I suspect it feels like an existential threat to trade unions. I
1: think my, my second source of scepticism about it, apart, apart from the, uh, the politics of it, is that it, it's an argument often made by technology fetishists who want to kind of salve their conscience about yeah. the displacement effects that technology is going to have. And I think you get a lot of tech heads saying, please, can the government support this so that we can be free to make our billions and concentrate yeah. income more? So I'm just slightly jeevious to the agenda of, of the, of yeah. the advocates my, of it. It means that,
0: you don't have to think about it. Well, how you're organising your, your workplace or how you... Because you just say, oh, well, we'll just take care of this, right? Yeah. It's a very sort of simple answer, isn't it? This is my re- my biggest
2: reservation with it is I feel like, as you say, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for all employers. Exactly. That yeah. they don't have to feel that they have any responsibility anymore to provide people with stability of income or decency, that actually you're free to do whatever you want, give people tiny scraps of work here or there, that's fine. It's, it's nothing to do with you anymore. Um, and of course, Silicon Valley loves that idea. Mm because that's the kind of work they want to design. But actually, that's a massive responsibility to decide that employers don't have anymore. Yeah.
1: Is, Britain is a world leader in AI, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. We're King's really, Cross is the, is the place.
2: Yeah, we're really, really good at it. Yeah.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, that's good to know. That's my um, next job sorted then. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'll, they'll, they'll never replace the uh, podcast industry with AI, will they? Um, Sarah, that was absolutely fascinating. Really interesting. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you very much. so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. We end these podcasts with a rant or rave. Today is our first philosophy rant from Ian Leslie.
0: I'm going to rave about an essay um which you can find online. It's called Anger and the Politics of Blame. I think that's what it's called. Um It's by Martha Nussbaum, uh American uh, philosopher. And it is just a fantastic read. So you need to put aside... I don't know, 20 minutes to read it because it's, it's quite a, lot, it's a few thousand words. Um, but I guarantee that you will you'll find it really interesting and, and uh, it'll basically make, make you a better person. Um, it is about the r- role of anger in politics and, and democracy uh, more generally. And she argues incredibly uh, eloquently and powerfully that the anger is ultimately poisonous to democracy. Um, and that it has a role in, in politics, but what tends to be because, you know, you want people to get angrier. You want people to be outraged, right? At, at moral injustice, right? That, that's, that's a good thing. But it almost always ends up um, in retribution. Um, anger becomes this kind of way of paying back people for, for what they've done. And the way she frames it is by saying, anger becomes backward-looking very quickly. It's about let's let's get those pe- people for something they've done in the past, rather than uh, forward-facing, looking looking into the future. And she kind of looks at some some examples. Central example is Martin Luther King, where she talks about the way that he, you know, he had a lot to be angry about, right? And he, he but he was very kind of careful to say, uh, I don't believe in retribution. So it was the kind of Malcolm, King Malcolm X. Debate really, um, because actually we need black and white uh, people in America to live together happily. So he was thinking about the future um, all the time, rather than saying these people have inflicted this terrible injustice on on us. Therefore, we, we must pay them back because that wouldn't have worked if you want to uh, a cooperative society. The thing
1: is that a lot of movements are combinations of the two, right? From you know progressive movements in the United States to civil rights to Brexit, they bundle together hope and optimism about a different future and fury at the status quo and I'm, i just wonder whether it's possible to distinguish between the two i guess also there are certain things in politics which tend to lend themselves towards the more optimistic future looking way of thinking like manifestos in elections for example right and there are certain things like prime minister's questions which are basically anger take lumps out of your opponent time yeah so there's 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 a place for different elements in these politics. I just wonder is, how you can I, encourage one rather than the other. It's a tricky one.
0: But. Well, I, but what I think is happening at the moment, and the, the reason this essay kind of spoke to me so so powerfully, was that what I see when I see the way politics is discussed, and social media, Twitter has undoubtedly had a big role in this, um, is a huge amount of of blaming and finger waving and aggressive um, anger. Um, and not a lot of light. I'm seeing a lot of heat generated on, on Twitter and people kind of moving into sort of argumentative, angry positions very quickly without actually sort of debating or thinking about. The question is, does it work? Does it recruit people to get angry? It, 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 it tends to solidify the group, yeah. but it doesn't actually sort of persuade. So so anyway, I, I, I can't say any of this better, better than Martha Nussbaum writes it. So I just uh, would advise you all to, to go away and read it excellent
1: thanks for that ian and uh thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon on the deep dive